This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Hello, and welcome to The Channel. My name is Paramita Pal, and I am your host today. In this episode, I am happy to be joined by Dr. Caroline Griot, social anthropologist and independent scholar affiliated with the Lyon Institute of Asian Studies. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you. I'm also very pleased to be joined by Nelsia Delanoe, an ethno-historian and formerly professor of American history at the Université Paris-Nanterre. Thank you, Professor Delanoe, for being with us today. Thank you, Paramita, for having us. Caroline and Elsia are the authors of the book Casablanca Hanoi, Une Porte Dérobée sur des Histoires Postcoloniales, or Casablanca Hanoi, An Historical Side Door onto Postcolonial Stories. This book was published in 2021 by Edition L'Armatan, and it includes a preface by François Guillemot. Casablanca Hanoi is a story that spans decades and takes place across nations. It is the story of Moroccan-Vietnamese families in mid-20th century Vietnam and of their descendants in the 21st century across the planet. Through these individuals' lives' trajectories, the book is also an exploration of questions of postcolonialism, migration and citizenship, and globalization and Asia-Africa relations. Importantly, Casablanca Hanoi is, above anything else, the story of the process of conducting research itself. It is the story of how two researchers meet and connect, and of circumstances and coincidences that shape investigation and inquiry. In this episode of the channel, we will explore some of these stories and questions with Caroline and Nelsia. And I'd like to start by diving straight into the question of circumstances and coincidences, and ask our authors to tell us about your personal and academic trajectories before you connected and started working together. As I gather from your first chapter, Destinée détournée, your lives followed entirely different paths before taking a turn in the same direction. Caroline, I'd like to start with you. Could you tell us about your biography and academic background. Yes, of course. Thank you. I was born in Burgundy in the early 70s. And because of my father's career, I spent most of my childhood moving within France and abroad with my family. I was in Morocco for my first year in primary school. So I learned how to read and write French in Rabat. My first major at university was Chinese studies. Before I turned to social anthropology, after my first year in China in the mid 90s, then I chose to live, conduct research, and work in China in the mid 90s for a decade before going to Vietnam and Cambodia to explore further Southeast Asian social context, which I was interested in. That's where I started to focus on marriage migration in the border regions. I then decided to pursue my research on this topic and I engaged in a doctoral program at Macquarie University in Australia and the Free University of Amsterdam, uh, 
while carrying out fieldwork research in China's Yunnan and Guangxi provinces, as well as North Vietnam. This research kept me busy for seven years before I moved on um, to other topics during some postdoctoral contracts. And for the last 10 years, I've been based in France, and I'm now an independent researcher and a biographer. Great to know. Your research and your travels and your life's history took you from Europe to China and Southeast Asia and back to Europe again. And then at some point you connected to Nilsia. Nilsia, please tell us first about your history and your specialization um, before we find out how you connected. Well, I was born in Morocco, in fact, in Casablanca. And I lived there until I had to go and study in Paris. These Moroccan years have had an everlasting influence on my life, for they triggered my interest and curiosity in colonial situations and relationships from various points of views. For instance, as independence struggle started, I discovered some colonizers siding with the colonized, like my father or some colonized people siding with the colonizers. In other words, they taught me, these years taught me the depth and paradoxes of history, and I love that. Once at university, I majored in English, which included British and American history, and therefore colonial histories. I went therefore to the US for my research on Indian land acquisition by the federal government as the founding processes of U.S. democracy. It became a PhD and then a book. It focused on finding out how empires acquired the land they are based on and why and from which perspective, including indigenous perspectives. Then I taught and wrote books. One of my books was and this one was about Moroccan soldiers who had been in the French army in Indochina, had deserted, had rallied the Viet Minh, the enemy, quote-unquote. And because I was from Morocco and because I had lived in Vietnam for two years, no, one year in Vietnam, one year in Cambodia, during the American War, it all connected and became a book, archives, oral history, visiting the country, knowing people. It took me four years. And then something else happened. Caroline sent me an email. Yes, um, we move on to the point where you meet. Um, because, Nelsie, as you mentioned, your life takes you from Native American history um, again, to, well, from Morocco also to Southeast Asia. Um, and then in 2006, your lives and histories connect when Caroline meets Dong, um, a woman of Moroccan-Vietnamese descent. Dong seems to me to be a central figure in your book, and I'd like to explore your meeting with her, Caroline, but also how she acts, at a, acts as a catalyst for um, subsequent events. Dung isn't just this catalyst of a series of events, but her persona also represents the complexity of intertwined histories um, that form the core of your work. 
Caroline, going back to you, I'm interested in your first meeting with Tong. Um, can you describe how that meeting took place and what your first impressions of her were? Yes, of course. Zoom, because you pronounce the, the D as a Z, so you pronounce ah, her name like Zoom. Thank you. Um, I met her in April 2006. At uh, that time, I was conducting fieldwork research on the Vietnamese marriage migrants in China. And I was staying in Hoko, a small Chinese border town just next to Vietnam. And um, one afternoon, I was sitting at a Vietnamese street stall, drinking lemon juice, when I noticed there one Vietnamese woman whose face was quite unusual compared to others. She was also looking at me, and um, she asked me where I was from, the usual questions. And when I replied that I was French, she smiled, and she said that she was French too. Obviously, she didn't look like a conversation followed in Chinese, in broken Chinese, and she ended up writing her French name on my notebook. And oddly, it looked like an Arabic name rather than a very classic French one. She then told me that her father had abandoned her when she was young and that she wished to find him. And that was the starting point of this unexpected new research topic. Who is Tsung? What, what questions did she inspire you to pursue? Um, you noticed her writing down her name for you. She looked different. Um, what questions did you have when you had this first meeting with her? Well, um, Zung and I, we quickly befriended over the days because I started to see her on a daily basis. Um, and we befriended very naturally because of our French connection, even though at that time I didn't really know what it meant, but it certainly meant something for her. And uh, she gave me access to her personal life. The reason is, why, uh, is that she described herself as the wife of a Chinese worker. And she was one of those women I was actually looking for in that place. One of those marriage migrants whose life a choice I, watched, I wanted to understand. In fact, she was um, a poor worker. She was surviving in this place, living on old jobs in very poor conditions without any plan for the future. And she looked like a sort of insecure woman to me. She was in her 30s. She had a son back in Vietnam. Her mother was in Vietnam and she was alone in this border town in China. She slowly told me about her life trajectory and I found out that it was full of dramas which conducted her slowly where she was in this spring 2006. So it was really out of curiosity for her own life that I started to look further into her past, including her search for her father. Your search and her search coincided in a way. Um, you wanted to pursue a number of questions after you met her and then decided at some point to contact Melcia, even though you had never met before and didn't know of each other before. How did that happen? How did you make that decision? Well, at first, Zoom's identity did not make any sense to me, like I said, but I was curious to understand how she could have an Arabic name and who could be her father. I knew she was telling the truth because her look was quite different, so there was something of mixed blood in her. Um, in her trajectory. So I simply went to an internet cafe 
which were available at that time, and I googled a few keywords. And miraculously, the algorithm of uh, Google provided me with the name of Nelsia Delanoe, a French historian who wrote a book that connected together Vietnam and North Africa. Since I had no other leads and no access to the book, no much details about it and nothing else to lose, I just decided to write to Nelsia and to ask for her advice. <laughs> I love the coincidence of, of, of this meeting and also of your decision to just Google and then find Nelsia. I also like how in your book you elaborate on the email exchange between the two of you um, and how that, that suddenly starts and then develops into something bigger. Um, and I'm curious to know, Nelsia, what was your initial reaction to Caroline's email? Here is an email from someone you have never heard of before, someone who wants to connect with you and talks to you about this case, this very interesting case um, and meeting that she's had. Well, I was just stunned. A woman named Caroline, who described herself as an anthropologist doing field work along the Chinese-Vietnamese border, had found me with a few clicks to tell me she had probably met an empire dust lady named Zunk. Just amazing. And not only that, she had decided to check it out, had very quickly found my book. First, after being stunned, I was impressed. Then I was moved. And then I was excited because it so happened that I was leaving for Morocco in the coming week and would probably therefore be able to answer her questions. Serendipity carried the day. I wrote back, so did she, and within a few hours and then a few days, we had a plan. You explained that your specialization is in Native American history. You also spend time in Vietnam. But why were you drawn to Zung's story in particular? What was it about that story um, that called out to you? I wasn't exactly drawn to Zung's story in the beginning. I was amazed. And I didn't know exactly what was amazing. I had spent four years documenting and then writing my Poussière d'Empire. When published in France and in Morocco in 2002, the book had created quite a surprise and lots of interest. Why? Because the story of Moroccan soldiers and many others from other origins in the French Indochinese army during the so-called Indochina War who had transgressed, deserted, and rallied the Viet Minh was unheard of. And I had found it out. Even more intriguing, these men, whom I had found out, had eventually been stuck in Vietnam until 1972. In a prisoner camp, it turned into a cooperative for almost 20 years. Why stuck there? This is what they told me about it. That was another amazing story. The causes for this being stuck there are various. It's the war, the Cold War, the history of Morocco, 
the history of Vietnam, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, in unification of Vietnam, the American War, post-colonial worlds. So eventually I knew I was going to know more about my work. Well, in the beginning, I had no precise questions about Zung's case because it was beyond my imagination. And I was dying to find out what it was that was beyond my imagination. Mm. This is what history is about. Soon enough, though, I was able to discuss Zung's case with my major informer in Morocco since I was going there a prominent character in the Moroccan community during their adventure in North Vietnam. This man was called the consul because of his representative role during those years. He was a, a kind of a leader but had many opponents. He was also called Miloud. I had interviewed Miloud at length many times, him and his wife and his children, He had always been very open, had always answered all my questions, had given me all sorts of ideas and contacts and leads. And he had always intimated that in 1972, the Moroccans from Suntai community had all gone back to Morocco with their wife and children. So obviously, Zung's case implied a different story. That's what I wanted to try and understand with this man, and indeed he did reveal immediately, right away, Zung's story, but he had never told me about it. So I transmitted everything to Caroline, then her part started checking out everything on the premises in Vietnam, all the way to Hanoi, where she wasn't supposed to go at the time, while I double-checked by mail with Morocco and on the premises in the various French archives. We had become a team. This is how our work started. It's very interesting to see how it all comes together. But let's also explore for a couple of minutes um, the background against which, the historical background against which this story, Zung's life and also your meeting and the events that follow take place. Let's start by staying with Zoom for a moment um, and taking a look at the background against which her life unfolds. For those of us not familiar with Vietnam in the mid-20th century, particularly in the turbulent decades of the 40s and the 50s, could you provide a brief sketch of political and historical context. You've touched upon these a bit in your answer to my previous question, but I wonder if you could explore that a bit further and and provide us a sketch. Well, I guess we'll look into the what is called the Indochina War, therefore. La Guerre d'Indochine tends, in fact, though it implies three other countries, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, tends to refer in the French historical context and more at large to the Vietnam War. Because it was the most important one, in terms of causes and consequences and losses for the for Vietnam, for France, for other countries, including the French army tra- tragic defeat in the Bien Phu in 1954, officially by Jap's revolutionary army and Ho Chi Minh's government, though at the time Jap 
and Ho Chi Minh's were not in control as much as they used to because the power had shifted from the Soviet-oriented power in Hanoi to the Maoist one. So the tensions in the countries were very high. The defeat in Dien Bien Phu implied total change from a political, social, and military point of view in France. It also opened the way to Laos and Cambodia's independence, and therefore to the quasi-end of the French Empire. To stop such a disaster, the French army crossed the oceans and launched into another war, the Algerian War, to no avail. But to go back to Indochina, in September 1940, the Japanese Empire invaded French Indochina, while in the meantime, German-occupied France and its new government, led by Maréchal Pétain, collaborated. And they did so until the end of the war, 1945. One of the consequences was French Indochina being bombarded by the U.S. Air Force, which is the beginning of the United States' implication in Indochina, and which will last until 1972. On March 45, the Pétain's French administration in Indochina was falling apart. So Japan proclaimed the independence of Vietnam, who, by the way, had already taken advantage of the situation to start its independence war. But after Japan's capitulation a few months later, Ho Chi Minh proclaimed the independence of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. That was September 2nd, 1945, and of the war in Europe. So France had been liberated, and therefore de Gaulle and the French army with Leclerc prepared their way back to Indochina, and Vietnam in particular, which they decided to reconquer. Thus began the Indochina War. In the midst of Cold War, Russians, Chinese um, opposition on the frontier within the country, French going back, it was just a terrible moment to be in Vietnam, I suppose. The war is supposed to have lasted from 1945 to 1954. For the first two years, 45 to 47, 1945 to 1947, the soldiers in the French army were metropolitan soldiers only. Why? In 1945, in view of the rising numbers of anti-colonial riots and attacks in North Africa and in Indochina, de Gaulle had decided to resort to only white European French soldiers to recapture Vietnam in particular. But the Indochina war and wars grew more difficult to wage. And the French army gradually had to resort to colonized forces, North African, African, and Indochinese. Between 1952 and 53, for instance, and we are getting to the end of the war, the French terrestrial forces were a minority, 41 to 44 percent, rough. 
And as 1947 and until 1954, North African forces in the Indochina War numbered 130 men. Among them, 52 percent were Moroccans. 90 percent of them being from rural origins and having fought in World War II for many of them. Whatever the origins of all these men, European or not, the men in the Far East French army learned and developed anti-guerrilla techniques, which were later put into practice in Algeria, against the Algerian insurrection, but also against the French army. Even more interesting, beyond these guerrilla practices, French officers developed a taste of discipline, indiscipline in Indochina which they put into practice in Algeria with the 1958 coup, which changed the history of Algeria and France and many other countries. As for our Moroccan soldiers who had deserted, 1,300 Moroccan soldiers were prisoners in prisoner camps. And about 40% of them died there because the mortality in Vietnamese camps was, was very high. But the deserters and rallied soldiers were few and far between in the Moroccan community, maybe between 200 and 500, closer to 200. The majority was in, in the North Africans were Algerian, and the majority of them was Vietnamese. Of course, these deserters and rallied uh, soldiers were perceived as traitors by the French, so if they were caught back, you know, their situation, they were in trouble. By the Viet Minh, they were debriefed extensively because, of course, once a traitor, always a traitor, quote-unquote, and, you know, you better watch, you know, check it out. So they were put in camps under the surveillance of a very famous Moroccan figure, outstanding personality, a man called Marouf, also had a Vietnamese name, Anma, and a became a general in the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese forces. He had been a brilliant soldier in the French army during World War II, where he had learned a lot, particularly in Ethiopia. Back home, he became a union organizer and a member of the Communist Party, became quite known in various countries, you know, third world countries, and therefore was selected by Hanoi and Abdelkrim, another important character, who was in Cairo organizing third world insurrections and you know, organization. He was selected as the man to organize North African dissidents in the French armies in Indochina. And he was very good at it. He was put in charge of the organization of the North African prisoner camps and education so that when they would go back home, they would put into practice uh, tactics and ideology for liberation. And for those who had rallied, he organized their lives as allies, but allies to be suspicious of. He was both generous and tough, and they liked him. But he was tough, and some of them were, you know, had problems with him. But they really respected him. And this constant strict surveillance they were, they were familiar with never stopped them, however, from rebelling and eventually winning 
rebelling against being stuck there. They wanted to go home. In 1956, when they were sent to Sontai Cooperative Camp, Morocco had independence has just been proclaimed. So they want to go home because this is so new. They left the country with a colony and a French protectorate. Now it's independent. With a king that was considered as a, more than a hero, a saint. So they built the gate and the entrance of their cooperative, which they built, was built between 1956 and 1964. This is the beginning of the American War. I would love to explore the gate in a bit more detail with you in a minute. And thank you for sketching this background so elaborately, um, this background of a, a turbulent history of Vietnam, um, of soldiers deserting from one army, but see, being seen as traitors by another um, also and then ending up in these camps, in these cooperatives, where they start a new life, in a way. Um, if we connect this bigger story, this bigger background, um, and, and sort of revert back to Zung's story for a moment, is there anything we know about Zung's biological father, Homan ben Mohammed? I might try to answer that question, uh, even though the answer will be quite short. Um, Zung's father, biological father, was among these men who were staying in this um, camp working as farmers. Um, most of them had married local Vietnamese women. It was not really official marriage, but an official marriage, and they had children. And so Zung was one of uh, his child his children, but um, it seems that what I gathered from different persons around is that uh, this man was um, sick, uh, he had some mental disease or something, and her mother was not very stable either, so Zoom was quickly adopted by another couple, another, another Vietnamese uh, Moroccan couple, and so she lived and grew up with them. Uh, so I don't know much about this man. And the only thing that I've learned later is that he died in Vietnam. So, yeah, that's it about him. So she was raised by another man. Again, a, a Moroccan-Vietnamese. A Moroccan-Vietnamese who, him, um, could go back to Morocco, but without her. And that's right. the story she heard when she was young, that she was abandoned by her father. But the picture was not that simple. But this is actually what we managed to know about her family. Very moving and complex story indeed. Um, and also, actually, actually, she had yeah. two fathers and two mothers. Eventually, yeah. exactly mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. um, and a life that uh, that that in a way starts out in these these cooperatives um, for her at least, or for her parents and her. Um, adopted parents. Going back now to, to this life in this cooperative, you mentioned how there was hope or there, were, there, were, um, there was a sentiment of, of being able to return to Morocco at some point. Um, and in the meantime, there were activities um, that people were, were undertaking that would also help them with their lives in Morocco in the future. Um, I'm an art historian and I have an interest in visual culture and I'm also fascinated by 
um, the material remains of these cooperatives. And so going back to the gate that you referred to earlier, um, this is not just any gate, but a monument, really, um, made by a cattle-raising Moroccan-Vietnamese settlement. A monument inspired by the 1732 Babel Mansur Gate in Meknes in Morocco, um, and a gate that also features on the cover of your book and in your title, and is in many ways concrete, tangible evidence of the existence of a Moroccan-Vietnamese community, um, not just in the cooperative, but also between past and present, between countries and between lives here and there. I'd like to ask whether you can describe the monument to us and elaborate on when, how, and why it was made. It was made, as I, I said, between 56 and 64, 1956 and 64, with sand, earth, cement, white paint, and that's it. They had a picture, though, to help them. Their commissar, whom I met later on when I, after I had found this incredible monument, brought them a dictionary, a French dictionary, Le La Rousse, and there was a picture of the Meknes door. So that helped them with, you know, decoration and proportion. He supported their decision to do that also because he liked them. He was really a warm guy, and, but he was very worried about them you know, repetitive, unruly demonstrations, because by then they had still no any inkling of what and when would, if they would go back or not go back. And his superiors were getting very nervous about his incapacity at ruling them. So he gave them this, you know, support with material and with this picture and with encouragements. And they built it. At the same time, they were working on the, on, you know, on the premises. They, were, they had to clear the jungle out that had invaded the, the property that had belonged to a French um, farmer who had cows. Who, and they found the cows who were sort of wandering around. They planted vegetables. They raised chickens and duck and cows. They became dairymen. They became popular because they were producing butter and milk that was sold in Hanoi to the European Red Cross, etc. And then Vietnamese wives, uh, whom they had married, were unusual. Because why do you marry a Moroccan guy who's called in Vietnamese a black white European? It's not very popular. They were sort of outcasts for one reason or another. And they had children. Now, the life they had while doing all this hard work was sort of unusual for these uh, men from the countryside because they were paid. The families could see doctors if and when necessary. The children went to school. and Everybody spoke Vietnamese. So gradually, everybody, and particularly the men, they were proud of themselves. Uh, because, first of all, this dignity that they were given and which they had never experienced before was such that they were grateful forever, even 
when I interviewed them. And despite the fact that they were angry at their uh, hosts, quote unquote, they still respected their what they call their their the dignity they gave them. But they insisted they wanted to go home, and therefore they insisted they would finish that door, which is uh, like a Moroccan door had three lobes. The middle one is ta- uh, taller and larger, and it's an arch. And the two ones on the side are arches as well with pillars, but not as tall. And they are uh, sculpted with sort of flowers, leaves, a small crown. And it, it had lo- gorgeous, strong pillars, uh, also sculpted with, you know, long lines all, all over. So it was sort of, it looked uh, strong. And in fact, it was very strong because when I found it in 2000, it was still there. It had not been destroyed. I had not been hurt. It was just, you know, looking gray with moistures and uh, cobwebs. And, uh, but it was, you just needed to polish it and it was just there, gorgeous. And it symbolized, according to me, a national pride and a declaration of sovereignty as Arabs, as Moroccans, as Muslims, with a king and a country they were going to go back to. For me, 50 years later or more, it has become a stone archive. Yeah, because it was fascinating to hear you say that they insisted on, on finishing this monument. And it is, it is that insistence that I'm curious about. What, is this, what was the symbolism at that point, would you say, for the family? Independence, sovereignty, they would go back home. There's no way they would be sort of trapped there, which was their feeling because everybody had gone back to their countries. Tunisians, independent in 1956, like Morocco. North Algerians, independence far later, 1962. People from Senegal, from Guinea, and the Vietnamese, everybody had gone back home. They were the last ones, and they couldn't figure out why. So it was a declaration of resistance. Now, of course, Marouf helped for a while, but then because he was a in the pro-Soviet uh, um, responsible you know, leaders, he had to leave Vietnam. So they were all by themselves, and they kept on fighting. Now, in addition to the gate to which we will return once more at the end of our conversation. Your book includes two other figures. This is a map of Morocco and a partial map of Vietnam. You have captioned the maps map of their Morocco and map of their North Vietnam. Caroline, maybe I can turn to you. Can you explain the captions? What does there mean? Well, their Morocco means um, it shows the cities or the regions where most of them were originating from, and um, including the capital also, and then the places that symbolize really their country, their kingdom. Um, n- not all of them were literated, so they probably didn't know much about their own country, and also because they left quite young. And they were from rural um, areas in Morocco, but at least they knew a few places, a few important cities, 
and that's we didn't want to to put a, a complete uh, regular map of uh, either Morocco or Vietnam because it didn't really make sense. You can find that everywhere, but we wanted something that shows really what Morocco represented to them and what Vietnam represented to them because also they only knew a part of Vietnam. They didn't know the whole country. They knew the places where they had fought during the war, where they had stayed uh, after the war, the different camps where they've been settled in and and that was their Vietnam as well. So that's a simplified version of Morocco and simplified version of uh, Vietnam. Thank you. I like that idea very much of, of the map as a representation of a particular idea of what Morocco and Vietnam is or might mean to the people we are talking about. I also thought of there um, as a word um, that contrasts with our. Um, would you say that there is an our as well in any of the histories you describe? Um, or is there an our in any of the maps that you describe? Surely there is. There is a our uh, which is a combination of Nelsias and my Morocco or Nelsias or my Vietnam because we've both experienced living and, ex and, and working uh, in both of these countries but at different times in history and for different reasons. So my Morocco is quite narrow because I've only stayed there for a year when I was very young so uh, I would only spot two cities, the cities where I have lived then and uh, we have never returned since. And for Nelsia, it, it would be the places where she was born, where she had lived, where she has traveled and had many other life experiences. And that's the same for Vietnam. So, of course, we it's a very subjective map of what our experience, our connection with both these countries is. At least that's how I see it. Also... When I, when I was in Morocco, it was still a colony, mm -hmm. but a special one. It has this strange status of protectorat, protectorate. And then I left Morocco, but it was my birthplace. So it's my country, but it's no longer a country where my family and my ancestors are, though my grandmother is buried there and my father is buried there. And it's, it's my subjective country, but my country is also France. And in fact, my country is all over. Uh, I lived in the United States, I lived in Cambodia, you know. But it remains my center, in a way, the center of a large world. Whereas when Caroline lived there, it was independent. True, you've both experienced the different countries you talk about at very different moments as well. Um, and through your own lives and personal histories. And when I lived in Vietnam, I lived in South Vietnam. I taught, and that was during the Tet Offensive. So that's a different experience, Completely too, especially, different. especially in Saigon, you know. Of course. And what if we talk about Zung and the people that you've worked with and studied? Would you say that there is a there and our um, as well in terms of how they identify with not just the map but with ideas of home, for instance. Um, does the there, there and our that you use refer to a sense of home as well for Zong and for the others who you have researched and who you talk about? And if so, 
does that there and our reference a different place in the 40s and 50s compared to the 70s when some Moroccan Vietnamese families leave for Morocco? Well, you know, in the 40s and the 50s, first World War II in Morocco made Morocco poor. And the poor people got poorer. And many were sent to fight in Europe. So those were difficult years for everyone, but not as difficult as for Europeans. So we were privileged, and they were un, you know, underprivileged, but privileged because of their colonial status. And then the Americans landed in Morocco, and it changed the, the, the picture, because they came with technology, with chewing gum, with rock and roll, and with you know, um, promises, particularly to ban colonialism, which they never did. So the picture of, you know, became very ambiguous at the same time. When they wanted to go back home, independence had been won by the king they had heard of and whom they had admired in the 40s. But he was not the independence king. He was the king who tried to resist the French. Very different story. He became a hero and a saint because of his struggle. So when they heard about independence going home, it was going back to victory, not just home, but to victory against the French. And they had deserted the French army. So, you know, they saw themselves as fighters, as winners, as having made history, as having a different perspective from every most of their soldier colleagues, because there were very few. And they had won against the Communist Party. Can you believe it? And some were communists of sorts. So when they went back home, they had things to do and say. This is why when they went back home, the king had died, the famous king, Mohammed V. And his son, Hassan II, was a different story. The Cold War was, you know, in full force, and he had joined the U.S. camp. Therefore, he was against Hanoi. And therefore, he was against having those guys back home because he he decided they were communists and he didn't want to have them. And they also had just deserted the French army, and the French army was still in Morocco under Hassan II and preparing and forming his own army and just sort of neo-colonial force for a long time. So who wanted this man? Nobody. And also Hanoi did not want to knee down in front of Hassan II's decision that they would have to decide they were prisoners, not rallied men. And the Hanoi refused to say that. But when they arrived in Rabat, they were called and presented as prisoners, finally freed by the king, the new king. And then they were dispersed all over the country, and were as, whereas they had lived together for such a long time, as in a commune. And they were told never to tell their story. Never. So I'm glad I was able to, of course, it was much later. And Hassan was about to die and then died. So I was able to collect all those information, but not all of them. And I'm glad Caroline eventually found not one poussière, but several families. One final question about this, this phenomenon of there and our um, probing a bit more into the the complexities that you describe of belonging and of, of migrating and moving. Um, 
can we use, I was wondering, can we use key terms such as diaspora and exile in this context? Or would you say that this is, this is a different kind of situation? Completely different. No exile. I mean, exile is a choice or is forced on you. They didn't feel exiled. They felt trapped. They felt betrayed. They felt, you know, uh, Moroccans travel and uh, Moroccans know how it is to move around. And they felt they would get back their, you know, their due, period. And they did, in a way. Mm-hmm. As for Zoom, maybe Karen knows more about her. Well, do you want me to answer if diaspora or exile meant something for her? Yes, if you would like to elaborate a bit. She, 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 she lived in Vietnam all her life. Well, not exactly, because when I, when I met her, she was actually living in China. Even though it was really the border of China and Vietnam, this was still China in different contexts where she had to speak another language and fit into another sort of society, unofficially, because she was not an, she was not an official migrant there. That's why she remained in this border town, because it was easier to cross the line. Um, I don't think diaspora meant, meant anything for her. Uh, exile, maybe more, because she was for a few years, um, yes, living outside of her country. But um, I would say that even though the, she was living in China, she was still very connected with Vietnamese people because there was a lot of Vietnamese workers living in this small town. So she basically spent every day talking with other Vietnamese. So. Living in a border town doesn't really mean the same thing as living really far from your country in physical um, physical terms. So no, uh, and I don't think she felt like uh, a Marocanian exile or a Marocco diaspora either because she was not aware of her own identity at first. She wasn't sure who she was. That's why she said she was French. Because to her, from what she heard when she was young, she kind of mixed up. French and Arabic and Morocco and Algerian that was kind of blur a blur picture for her so Morocco didn't mean anything for her until she could actually meet Moroccan people later on which she did because Caroline went to the Moroccan embassy in Hanoi and this is when you know she discovered other descendants and other families, and Malika in particular. Exactly. We move at this point, let's fast forward, right, and move at this point um, to another important figure in your story, um, in the connection between you two and the connection between your research um, and an important person in your quest as well. And that is... um, Again, a daughter of a Moroccan father and a Vietnamese mother, Malika Rojti, um, whom, Caroline, you met in 2006, um, not long after you met Zong, um, and who was a, or is a civil servant at the Moroccan embassy um, in Hanoi. Caroline, can you introduce Malika to us? Yes, <clears throat> Malika um, is a brilliant civil servant in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Marco. She's still now, 15 years after. She was born in Vietnam, as you said, uh, from a Vietnamese mother and a Moroccan uh, father. She was among the lucky ones who could return to Morocco in 1972 
uh, together with her parents and her family, her siblings. In 2006, she held a position in Corsica just before being hired by the new Morocco embassy in Hanoi. They were looking for someone like her um, because she was not only very competent in her field, but she was also fluent in both Arabic and Vietnamese, which was not common. And this is why she was also in charge with the mixed children case, which the embassy was aware before um, I ever entered in the picture. They were aware that there weren't these people in Morocco at that time. And so Malika was in charge with this case due to her knowledge of the situation. So I met her not at the very beginning, but after a few months when I returned to to Hanoi, I met her there and um, we got along very well. She's a very friendly person. And at that time, Zoom was already working in the embassy because thanks to the ambassador that I met soon after Zoom, um, the embassy was just opening at that time. That was a very coincidental fact at that moment. Um, He he just um, proposed her to work in the embassy as a, as a cleaner, as a, that there was very few people working there at that time. So, of course, Zung accepted, and uh, that's how she met Malika. And in a way, they also became very close because they had a similar background, even though their life took completely different paths uh, when they were young, but they were still fel- feeling connected in mm-hmm. a way. What was Malika's part in your research? Um, well, it depends on which research you're talking about. Is it um, my academic research, official academic research at that time, or the research um, linked to Zung's case? Um, if that's the about latter. the latter, okay. So uh, she she did play an important um, part in my research of Zung's father, even though uh, I had already gathered most of the information before I met them in the embassy. Um, Nancy's friends, Miloud, um, the, the, the man who she refers to as the consul, who she met in, in Morocco soon after we got in touch, um, he was the one who provided most of the detailed information about uh, Zung's father identity. So he helped us identifying her fathers, both. Malika followed up the case once she arrived in Vietnam, and she gathered the elements we had provided her in order to uh, to process with the administration aspect of that. That is to get soon recognized as the official daughter of a for former Marocan soldier, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, but. What I could say, even though Malika did not play a direct role in my research, she played an important role in Zung's new life. And I think that's the most important to to remember. Uh, Because they both started to work at the embassy um, at the same period, that is in this year, 2006. They they became like sisters uh, because they've experienced the same childhood as mixed children. Malika was a bit older, so she kind of took Zung under her wings at that time. Mm. Um, She supported her um, for many years 
because Zoom stayed many years in the embassy and uh, she introduced her to Morocco's culture and country. And that's also very important because Zoom had no idea what Morocco was, what Moroccan people were, mm. were and so she didn't, she didn't know nothing. And um, Malika was also a very important link between us, between Zoom and I, since she facilitated communication when I visited her in Hanoi. Uh, because Zoom um, had left the Chinese border and she had lost most of her Chinese language, which was already kind of chaotic when I first met her, but she mostly lost it. And my Vietnamese was, of course, far from being fluent. So when we were all meeting together, uh, Malika was translating and helping me to better understand Zoom's previous uh, and current situation and all the statements she'd made before also. It helped me clarifying uh, Zoom's background and trajectory. Uh, so in that sense, I can say that Malika was part of the story, a very important person, and part of my research on Zoom's life too. And maybe we can add the fact that Malika told us that there were 10 other children um, coming to that. Yes, that was my next question as well, because in addition to helping you uh, finding out about Zung's history, Malika was also crucial in helping to find other children of mixed marriages. Um, how many are we talking about? And how do these children, the second and third generation descendants of Vietnam and Morocco, um, how do they, they, they see Vietnam and Morocco? How do they see their own place in history? And what is home to them? Well, it's um, actually when Malika was in charge of this case in the first year, she managed to meet all of the mixed uh, Morocco-Vietnamese families uh, who were all living in rural Vietnam. She was able to find them because she had a list uh, that was established before she even uh, arrived in Vietnam. Um, so she knew their names and she had just to find them in rural Vietnam. Um, but these were places where I did not have the opportunity to go because my official research was not there. It was at the border. Um, so I, I can say that I, I personally didn't meet any of these descendants. There were 10 at that time, 10 persons uh, who were themselves married and who had children. So all together, I don't know exactly how many persons that implied, but uh, I would say about 30 maybe. So they, they were the first generation and the second generation. Um, but my Saba only knew Zung and her son, who was the second generation, whom I met when I went to her home place. Right. And um, so what I have learned about the others, including what they think about Vietnam or Morocco, is all through Malika and Zoom, not from direct interaction with them. And I also saw their pictures and some of their quotes in some reports and media articles. But that's all I can really say about them myself. But I could add that I, Malika wrote me and they wrote me because they didn't know who their father was. They had lost all documents. So to find a Moroccan soldier in the French army without having even the real right name was difficult. So we tried. Everybody helped from the archives. Everybody was just amazingly cooperative. 
but we didn't we were unable to bring them the information they were looking for and i'm sure for the many of these are boys and men difficult to to know you have a father who fought deserted and you don't know who he is to this day though it was a father or a grandfather in addition to the difficulty of of finding the fathers as you mentioned or connecting to them um What are the biggest obstacles, would you say, to granting Moroccan citizenship to these descendants, um, to even the second-generation descendants of Moroccan-Vietnamese parents in this century, in the early 21st century? What are the greatest obstacles, do you think, at the moment? Well, um, at the moment, it, it's done now. So at that time, I would say the, the main difficulty, as Nessia um, said, it's uh, it's paperwork. Because um, let's not forget that these American uh, soldiers were living in the jungle in small villages, and uh, they were not officially married with these women. So there was no uh, official record of these families. Sometimes there was record of the birth of their children, But the name of the fathers were written uh, in Vietnamese. So that was a Vietnamese translation uh, of Moroccan names. So it was kind of difficult to guess. And um, some of them may have papers, but for those who went back to Vietnam and leaving behind the wives and the children, they took with them the papers. Uh, in other cases, papers were lost. Or uh, I remember that in for, for, for Zung's case, um, there were archives in the um, in the city hall of the village where she was living, but because of uh, bombs during the American War, these archives were destroyed, so there was no trace of them. So we managed through complicated way to find the names of these of these men, but that was very difficult, and uh, because most m many of these names were were alike. You know, there was a lot of Mohammed and Mahomet, and you know, <laughs> so that was really, really tricky to find them. So Miloud in Morocco was one very key, important person because he had this great memory of names of all the people he's he's been living with, and uh, he was able to complete the picture. So that was the main obstacle. So that's why it it, it took years to identify these men and then to get them recognized in Morocco and then prove also that the children in Vietnam who were claiming they were the children of these Moroccan men were actually their children. Because you can't prove it with just a face. You have to prove it in another way, in a very administrative, strict way. And so it it was a... A very complicated process that we can't go into details much, but uh, many, many different persons and administration were involved in in finding in help. In, in help, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in the end, she ma they, they managed, uh, thanks to Malika's follow-up of that case for many years, they managed to to get uh, Malcolm passports uh, so that they could for all of the descendants, for all of the descendants, the first and the second generation. And we heard the third generation. I don't know if some of them were born yet, but yeah. But it took really a long time. Mm. At the end of the conversation, I want to return to the gate. It was monumental, 
but it was at the point of, well, being destroyed or at the point of, of being ignored. Um, both. Both destroyed and ignored. Um, and upon your petition, then suddenly, it was declared Vietnamese national heritage. It was then renovated in 2018 um, and has now become a tourist attraction and a key site in the celebration of 60 years of bilateral ties between Morocco and Vietnam. You've given us a description of what the gate looked like before, Milcia, earlier on in the conversation. Can you tell us what it looks like now and what it represents or has come to represent today? Well, the first renovation was just clearing the place, cleaning the, the monument and, uh, you know, adding everything so that it looks just as it was in the first place. And that's about it. And then the ambassador was, had, was replaced by another one who had a different view and thought it should be, you know, a spectacular renovation with spectacular inauguration. And the Vietnamese and the Moroccans organized that inauguration after it had been renovated. The new renovation looks like a Bollywood movie. It's pink and it's topped. It's like a pink pie crown with a whipped cream. So that was very, very surprising. It's photographs I saw because I wasn't there on the premises, nor was Caroline, nor was Malika. And for this inauguration with a great, you know, cohort of Vietnamese young ladies in red Audi and music and Vietnamese businessmen and Moroccan businessmen meeting, you know, going to the inauguration, then having long conversation and striking uh, commercial agreements between the two countries. And then numerous Vietnamese and Moroccan academics also had been invited to the inauguration, and then they held a two-day colloquium, seminar, uh, about the gate, its context, the causes, the consequences, and its everlasting meaning. And there is this beautiful plaque honoring the story referred to, honoring a plaque referring to, and that's the almost literal text, the valiant alliance of Morocco and the Socialist Republic of Vietnam against colonial and imperial occupation, unquote. So in a word, well, first I wasn't invited, nor my name ever mentioned, and I was, uh, I couldn't believe it that, you know. But in a way it was interesting because it was the ex-colonies expelling the representative of the ex-French colonizer, and rewriting history into something like official and circumstantial history. So in a way it was sad, but at the same time it was exciting because, as I said, I love history and even its um, uh, painful moments. <laughs> and that was a, was a bit painful, but essentially amazing and surprising. A different story came out of that story. Yes, the gates meaning also changed entirely. At least that's that's the feeling that I have from the book and from how you describe it. What would you say, briefly, what would you say are the political and economic factors that have combined to create this new story about the meaning of the gate and the relations between the countries involved? Well, 
you know, China's role at the moment and the opening of the Silk Road, new Silk Road, is uh, sort of important for or against it. And Morocco and Vietnam need and don't need China. So it's sort of a um, combination. Morocco needs uh, expertise from those countries and imports and exports. And I think also it was an ideological decision to dig into that history that had been not even conceived of and turn it into something maybe heroic. That's also important for any country to have links that could always be, you know, helpful. And based on heroism against classic enemy, which at the time was, for instance, uh, colonialism. But I'm not sure it, it has yet developed in, for the moment. We need to wait and see. And what, if any, are the implications of this new situation on the people who you have studied, on the people we are talking about, the Moroccan-Vietnamese families in question? As I understand, they now have citizenship. Um, but where is Malika today, for instance, Caroline? And what does her daughter do? Can you tell us more about their situation? Malika, after she left Vietnam, she returned shortly in, to Morocco, and then she was sent to the Kazakhstan, uh, the Morocco embassy in Kazakhstan for a few years. So that was a big change. And um, just before COVID or last year, I think last year she returned to Morocco, and now she's uh, working there. Um, again at the Ministry of Foreign Office as a human resource officer, I think. Um, and her daughter, who's grown up, and um, she now lives in France. She's married and she has a child. And she works as an independent organizer of a cultural event, I think. Um, that's all I know because I haven't got a chance to meet her, but she's in France, so... They don't see each other at the moment because of uh, the situation that prevents them from traveling. But they are both here. They're not in Vietnam. The ambassador is also um, retired now, so he's in Vietnam. He's in uh, Morocco. And uh, as for the, the families, the, the, the descendant, the tenth original, uh, only eight of them are still alive now because it's been 15 years now. Um, they, they are still, as far as I know, um, they are still living in the same condition. They have their Morocco passports and somehow they, they have their dignity back uh, because their Morocco status is officially recognized. It's not only a burden as it used to be for all their life because mixed children, uh, mixed blood children are not very well um, respected in Vietnam. Um, but at least now they are recognized. So I, I can't say because I don't know them personally, but I, I wouldn't say that they are proud, but at least it's recognized, it's official. And only one of their own children, so the second generation, one young woman um, went to Morocco to work there. And um, she's mentioned in the book. And uh, what we know from Malika is that she is still there and she also got married there to a French person. Um, <laughs> and I, know, I don't know exactly what she's doing, but she's the only third generation children who could uh, move back to Morocco. The rest of them just remained in Vietnam. 
probably in the same socioeconomic situation. Thank you so much for telling us about these fascinating stories. Um, it's also nice to see how they unfold and keep unfolding. Um, we do not know what the next um, steps will be, mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious to know how this will continue and continue to unfold. I'd like to end today's conversation with um, the citation from Montaigne at the start of your book. You say, and I quote, Je sais que l'amitié a les bras assez longs pour se tenir et se joindre d'un coin de monde à l'autre. Could you please elaborate on this quote, maybe translate it for us a little bit, and tell us particularly how it applies to your cooperation and your book. What are your hopes for the future of the people you have worked with? Well, trying to translate uh, Montaigne's quotation would be something like, friendship has long arms, helps hugging, and it helps connecting with the rest of the world. Something like that. Certainly, there, were f there was friendship in this work, but a very special kind of friendship. So we need to, you know, friendship is, uh, as Montaigne say, long arms, but how do we hug and, and why and when is a different question. Malika was a became a friend, Caroline became a friend, Ambassador became a friend, Milud became a friend, but when Milud died, nobody told me. But there, nevertheless, for instance, you know, Different cultures, different backgrounds, men, women. Caroline was at, you know, was a Tiananmen girl. I was a May 68 girl. So, nevertheless. What has friendship meant to you, Caroline? It's, it's also being connected with so many different people in different parts of the world. Of the world. Um, and at the same time, we were all part of this very important story, an emotional story, but we were never able to gather all together at the same place. It was always uh, Zoom in me, or Malika and Elsia, or the ambassador and me, or but we were never in the same continent, in the same country, in the same place. Even even now, 15 years after, we've never managed to do that, and that's um, it. It's it also represents for me. The, the way friendship are experienced now through, through technology also, because we would have never been able to, um, to do such a research and to help um, a person finding her own identity with all the consequences without the help of internet, without the speed of uh, connecting to each other to, to, inform each other of any new development and everything. Even though it was a slow process in the end, because it took about 10 years to, to get the passport, which was the end of the story. It, it was not the original purpose, but it was the end of the story. But it was still fast compared of what it could have been, let's say, in the 70s or in the 80s, at the time where the, the, the people were separated in the first place, the, the, the fathers with their children and it's it's a strange experience to to live such friendship while seeing each other only once in a while for a few hours or a few days and still remaining very very much connected that's one of the many experiences of that 
thoughts I've had in life, but that was certainly a strong one and that still remains because we're still friends and we've built on many other experiences afterwards. Thank you very much. What a beautiful way to end today's conversation um, on a friendship across parts of the planet using various means of technology as well as personal connections and, and meetings. Thanks to both of you for joining us on the channel today um, and for telling us these fascinating stories and histories and showing us how they connect through coincidences, circumstances, um, and also through sentiments such as resilience um, and determination. I'm curious to know how the story will unfold in the future, and I hope to welcome you back on the channel again someday. Thank you, Caroline, and we'll see you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Baronita. It was lovely. Bye-bye. That was Caroline Griot and Nelsia Delanoe. Their new book is Casablanca Hanoi, published in 2021 in French by Edition L'Armatant. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we'd love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.